0: How does one physician start on one path, but then wind up on another? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Todd Wilcox, who is now in charge of the healthcare system in Utah and acts as a consultant to many other jail healthcare systems across the country. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking in Missions and Med Student Life. I've got a great guest today, Dr. Wilcox. Um, Dr. Wilcox, I know you have had a very circuitous route to where you're at now. How did it start? Because when I talk to med students, um, there are always questions about how you get there and how you get there. I mean, uh, how did you get to where you're at?
1: Well, I did kind of take the scenic route throughout my career, and uh, what I'm doing now is not anything like I envisioned when I was uh, coming through school, but it's been a really happy route for me. Uh, I came through school and really thought I wanted to be a surgeon, uh, ended up uh, going to surgical residency, did uh, surgery for about five years, and then uh, just kind of decided that the lifestyle wasn't really what I wanted, It wasn't really enough time for me to pursue other outside interests. And so then I decided to do uh, kind of a different pathway through the rest of my career. So I went back and redid my schooling. I got an MBA uh, and ended up uh, with a job now where I get to practice medicine. I get to be an administrator and uh, have a really interesting uh, field of uh, medicine that I practice in, which is correctional health care. And uh, overseeing uh, the care that is uh, provided to underprivileged and uh, disadvantaged individuals. Excellent. And so let's break that down. And the
0: first thing you talked about is an MBA. I get asked a lot when I go out there um, about, you know, should I get my MBA along with my MD? Does the University of Utah have a combined MD-MBA program? And I can already tell you not yet, but I think that's on the horizon. What would you tell uh, medical students or applicants to medical school about getting an MBA?
1: Well, I think it has a lot to do with what you are genuinely interested in. There are a lot of individuals who uh, really don't have an interest in the numbers and in operations, and getting an MBA is not a magic solution to anything. But if it's something that you have some facility in and it's something that you really want to implement in your career, uh, it's a really wonderful pathway. I, I uh, really value what I learned uh, in my MBA uh, because it has allowed me to run large operations. That's mostly what I do is I I do a lot of consulting, and I redesign large operations uh, of healthcare delivery systems for uh, state governments, city governments, public health departments, and uh, having that MBA background is really valuable to understand just the operations for how to make things efficient. Mm
0: -hmm. Excellent. So when you took your MBA, was a kind of traditional classroom style? Because I know more and more of these online MBAs.
1: Well, I really felt like it was important uh, to do a full MBA program. And uh, so I ended up doing the full classroom style. And what I would – my advice for the MBA program is that I, th- I felt it really valuable to have a class because I learned more from my classmates than I really did from the curriculum of the program. Mm-hmm. And so that interaction with my classmates and that collaboration – The group projects and things, uh, for me, was the most valuable experience, and that's a little bit uh, difficult to do in an online setting. So I would definitely advocate for a classroom experience.
0: And that's the same uh, philosophy that we have here at our medical school with our mandatory attendance policy, because we expect our students to come to class and teach and learn from one another, and that's incredibly powerful, both in an academic medical setting as well as it sounds like from a business school setting.
1: So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, healthcare these days is all about collaboration, and uh, you just can't be the solo practitioner anymore with no associations with anybody else. And if you try to go through medical school as a, a solo act, uh, it just doesn't translate into the real world because, I mean, so much of what you do as a physician now is you're serving as the coach for a very large team of individuals, and you have to have those collaboration skills. Mm-hmm.
0: So, going back to business school as a physician, were all the business students coming up to you and asking you like, about their medications or i mean i 'm just kind of curious how, how how you were perceived in that
1: environment. Well, it was a really interesting um, mix uh, because you know, obviously, when you're a physician, everybody asks you about their healthcare issues and mm-hmm. their aunt and uncle and their all quote, those unquote, things. Friend, yes, their friend. <laughs> so, you know, I certainly did plenty of advising uh, along those lines. But one of the things that I found to be so interesting was that the, de- the decision making in medicine is far different than it is in business, and w- there was a definite change of style Um, so in medicine we typically make decisions very quickly and then we look at the consequences of of those decisions to see if those decisions were correct we make a diagnosis we implement a treatment plan we follow up with the patient two weeks later to see if the treatment's working Uh, but in business that's not really the case Uh, in business they want to study the data, study the data, study the data, and postpone the decision as long as possible. Uh, and so it was a real <clears throat> uh, tug-of-war with my classmates when we were doing group projects you know, to sort of come together with a cohesive uh, decision and just a whole different style of learning in that setting. But a valuable experience for sure. Awesome. All right, so let's move on. You mentioned
0: correctional health care. So when someone says that, I, I have an image of, like, jails and prisons. I mean, what does that look like? I mean, what does correctional health care mean?
1: Well, correctional health is a broad uh, field of health care that is actually extremely large these days uh, because we here in America like to incarcerate um, you know, pretty much everybody. Um, so... <laughs> So, uh, fortunately true. Yeah, we have very high incarceration rates across the world. We yeah. do. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is because prisoners are, are the only class of Americans who have a guaranteed right to healthcare, the healthcare has to be up to a certain standard. Uh, and so the industry actually is incredibly large. Um, When you look at the population that exists in state prison systems, you know, I did a big project in California not too long ago, and their entire prison population and the budget to care for them is a couple billion dollars. Uh, And, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of physicians involved in their care. I mean, it's a big industry. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes that industry particularly appealing to me is that it's all about the process. You have to process through thousands of individuals all in an efficient way to get the cost to be as low as possible, still deliver quality care. And so it's a fascinating intellectual challenge for how to design a system that accomplishes all of those goals and to still practice good health care.
0: How did you get involved in that? I mean, did they, upon graduation from business school, did, I mean... Did they approach you? Did you approach them? I mean, how does if, if there's any listeners out there who have an interest in this, I mean, how, how, did, how did you get involved?
1: Well, my involvement was really sort of by luck. Uh, I did a favor for a friend is basically my involvement um, here in Salt Lake. At that point in time, the sheriff's office was in trouble because they were not delivering health care that met the constitutional minimums. And so one of my friends asked me if I would help them redesign the system. And I was in business school at the same time, which uh, seemed like an appealing thing to do. And I was used to working the long hours of a resident and, uh, and so it was a nice change to be able to do something different, and it just kind of grew from there. We started off with a one-year engagement and decided that we really liked the project, and I did it with a number of my physician friends here in town, and we all just really liked the patients a lot. The pathology inside the correctional facilities is really interesting. Are really interesting, and so we decided to stay. and uh, It's worked out, and that's been about 18 years ago. Uh, you said it's interesting. Uh, well, can you think
0: about a specific patient you can be like vague enough to talk about? I mean, or what makes it interesting? I mean, why, why do you say that?
1: Well, one of the things that uh, is true about the corrections population is that they generally don't have access to health care throughout their life. Mm-hmm. Many of them are underserved, they don't have a lot of money. And so you typically see diseases present uh, at a later stage in the evolution of that disease, uh, which makes the management of it much more significant. Um, So you end up with sicker patients, you end up with patients that are more complex, you end up with lots of um, co-occurring issues, multiple diseases, um, sick patients who have mental health overlay, uh, and so intellectually, as a practicing physician, it's just a fascinating Population to care for. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, because they're within the prison system, you know, let's pretend someone presents with a very advanced stage of a disease. Do they, ha- are, do, do they have to take the treatment? I mean, if you recommend they take, you know, antibiotics for something, can they refuse in the prison system, or how does that look like?
1: Well, so just because you're incarcerated doesn't mean you give up your rights. Okay. And so they have the right to refuse care. Uh, but we oftentimes run into individuals who are not competent. And so we have to do a competency evaluation to determine whether they can refuse care. And there are instances where we go to court uh, to advocate for a patient mm-hmm. who we don't feel is competent. And we feel that the care that they are refusing puts them at uh, risk for life or limb Mm -hmm. and uh, at that point we allow the attorneys and the judges to weigh in Um, But, yeah, it's sometimes a very complicated issue. Um, There are lots of ethical issues that occur in corrections, and we do have individuals who choose not to eat as a protest. Mm. And so that can present, you know, down the road, if they starve themselves for very long, uh, they uh, start having medical problems and complications. Mm -hmm. uh, That presents some real ethical issues as to whether to intervene or not.
0: And I made a, a remark a few weeks ago in front of you about the prison food not being good, and you called me out. You say it's actually quite good now. So.
1: Well, you know, it, it's good in the way that a physician thinks it's good. Okay. Uh, what I would tell you is that uh, jail food is not probably the most flavorful. <laughs> um, it's not going to win anything, uh, any awards. But what I find is that um, we serve a very healthy, planned, structured meal system. And what I find is that many of my patients who come in from the street come in with uh, this incredible disease burden of hypertension, diabetes, type 2 diabetes mostly. Um, and a lot of sleep apnea issues. And when they're with us, we put them on a structured diet. And, in fact, many of my patients I will put on a calorie-restricted diet mm. to help them lose weight. <clears throat> and uh, my cure rate for type 2 diabetes uh, is actually quite high. Oh, I awesome. have a number of patients that I move off of meds mm-hmm. because we uh, help them eat better.
0: Yeah. You know, when I
1: read stories nationwide, uh, you know,
0: because I surf the internet and I like to pick up kind of like these interesting stories. And it seems like I'm reading more and more of these stories where individuals are incarcerated and they're getting really good healthcare and then they get released. And because of the way our system is set up, a lot of times they don't have any follow-up. So I've, I've actually read these stories where people on purpose, because they, they're, they're advanced in their years, they have a lot of comorbid diseases, they'll actually go out and purposely commit a crime just to go back to prison. Um, Have you ever seen anything like that, Dr. Wilcox?
1: Oh, yeah, that happens. Okay. Uh, There are individuals who who do that. In fact, I had a gentleman not too long ago who uh, found himself kind of in the gap between the end of his work years uh, and the fact that he was in a wheelchair and he didn't qualify for nursing home services yet. And so he had about a three-year gap that he had to make up. And so he decided to uh, assault an officer and protest his charges and fight his case. And his plan was to fight that for three years until he could qualify for a nursing home. And then he was set for the rest of his life.
0: Wow. So it sounds like he researched what crime or what statute he could violate to get that three years.
1: Yes. He was very selective in the commission of his crime uh, to make sure that the penalty wasn't too bad and that he could jam up the government long enough to uh, stay in jail with us. Yeah. Um, but that happens. I also have, uh, diabetics who uh, know that they're out of control and in fact I have one that I've cared for for 15 years he's a juvenile diabetic he weighs about 90 pounds he's not really a threat to anybody but whenever he gets out of control he walks up and punches a police officer can't really hurt anybody Mm -hmm. Um, but of course you know when you hit a police officer that means you go to jail and so he comes back, and we care for him, and uh, that's just the way it goes. Mm,
0: okay. What's the, what's one of the biggest mis- misconceptions of the prison healthcare system? What what constantly You know, when you tell people what you do, what's one of the constant like uh, you know comments that you hear that's just inaccurate?
1: Well, probably the biggest misconception is that, which is kind of propagated by the movies, that the conditions inside of jails and prisons are horrific and that the care is not really a state of the art. Uh, we actually have a very large healthcare care system. <clears throat> we run... Uh, a a medical hospital, a mental health hospital. Uh, We have the most advanced systems that exist. Our healthcare setting is as modern as any place in the community. All of our physicians are, most of them are faculty here at the university. and uh, So we actually have a very efficient a well run, high quality healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And that's a big misconception that people have about that setting.
0: And then, you know, before we did this podcast, Dr. Wilcox, I kind of looked up some information. And, and you know, I think one of the also misconceptions is it's, it's dangerous. And I would argue, because, you know, I look at the statistics, a doctor is just as likely to get assaulted or hit within a university hospital or a private hospital as within
1: a prison. Uh, would, would you agree with that? Oh, and my setting is the safest healthcare setting okay. you could have. Everybody's been uh, searched in. Mm-hmm. They've gone through metal detectors. I have officers with me at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, I never have more than one prisoner out, you know, at a time, so there's no chance of any sort of, uh, you know, getting ganged up on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're under camera monitoring wherever we go, 24 hours a day. I, I remember during my residency program, one of my attending physicians, I was just a resident, uh,
0: uh, and this was on internal medicine was leaning over and talking to a patient who was in pain and didn't feel like the pain was being treated adequately. And I remember very clearly this patient reached up and grabbed my attending physician's tie and just yanked it really hard. And it just caught the entire team by surprise. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know we have this image of you know patients being very grateful for their care, which is usually is the case, but every once in a while people get very frustrated i don 't care what setting it is and you know when people are frustrated or, or feel they 're not being listened to, they act out sometimes and so I, you talk to any physician, they always have stories about uh, assaults, near assaults, being hits, being poked, being pulled, things like that so so all right. Um, let 's see you know you mentioned the mental health care aspect, um, so i 'm a psychiatrist and we 've talked previously before this podcast and you know we can just, I just want to kind of focus on that um, a lot of pe- you know a lot of people on the streets do have a mental illness. Um, what kind of psychiatric care do they get if someone you know has maybe schizophrenia and you know they get picked up for like loitering or you know disorderly conduct or something like that what What happens within the system?
1: Well, the jail uh, has become, over the last several years, we are now the largest single mental health provider in the state of Utah. Mm -hmm. And so we have a very large mental health population. About 30% of our population is considered to be seriously mentally ill. uh, And we house, on a daily basis, about 2,300 individuals. Um, And so when somebody's picked up, they're brought in, they're assessed, and uh, kind of depending upon their behavior and their needs, they, we determine where they're going to be housed. We have everything from an acute psychiatric hospital where we do the highest level care, same as you would get at the university hospital, uh, to some step-down units, to you know regular population. And we have psychiatrists. We have a very large team of mental health uh, professionals who evaluate them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we also have case managers who um, do their discharge planning so that we can hopefully get them hooked up with services in the community mm-hmm. to prevent them from coming back.
0: Yeah. I like what you said, Dr. Wilcox. I mean, one of the questions I always ask the med students, what is the largest <laughs> mental health system in the United States? And, you know, and so they hem and haw, and sometimes they, like, tell me this state hospital or that state hospital. It's actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually Los Angeles County jail system, correct? Because uh, of the immense scope of Los Angeles and all the individuals living on the streets with mental illness. And, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the correct- Instructional facilities nowadays have become you know, the, the nation's answer to uh, mental health, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of ethical issues about that and uh, some policy issues about that, mm-hmm. but the reality is that's what it is, and we have to care for them. And so, um, you know, for me as a physician, I oversee that entire program. It's not anything that I really originally intended to do. But it's fascinating to, you know, to operate a system that large and with that broad of a scope in this city.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, we have a few minutes left, Dr. Wilcox. And so, you know, you kind of spoke. You know, I get the sense you travel a lot for your job. I get the sense you have a lot of different interests outside of medicine. Uh, well, what, what are some of your hobbies? What do you have some time to do?
1: Well, for hobbies, I do a lot of uh, recreational activities. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time down at Lake Powell in the summertime. I have a houseboat down there, and uh, I think Lake Powell is about the greatest place ever to uh, go on vacation. So I spend a lot of time down there. Uh, do a lot of things in the mountains mm-hmm. during the wintertime. Uh, but, yeah, I also do quite a bit of international travel. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hobby to try to go to a different country every year. And Do you work with prison systems in different countries? No, not so, really. I think that would
0: be fascinating to kind of see the compare and contrast.
1: Yeah, the <clears throat> prison systems in other countries, um, everything is really so different than it is here that it's not really an easy transition. So I haven't really done very much of that. Mm-hmm. I've studied <clears throat> healthcare delivery in other countries. I was in Cuba uh, last year and looked at their healthcare delivery system as it relates to what we do, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the correction setting. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I travel for fun and mm-hmm. mostly do a lot of sports. In the summertime.
0: All right. So the listeners out there who are into Lake Powell, where are your where where are the best places to go in Lake Powell? If you had to recommend,
1: well, my favorite marina is Waweep mm-hmm. um, because the uh, beaches down there are really sort of the best, and the city is a little bit more developed. So that's where my houseboat is located. And uh, so if anybody wants to come uh, wakeboard with me, or, you know, look me up. <laughs> okay. home, but uh, yeah, that's it's a great place. What's the name of your boat? Uh, the Black Mariah the Black Mariah, is there, there is a story behind that? Well, I, yes, there is. <laughs> so Dr. Wilcox did not know I'm going down, the, going down these paths. <laughs> um, well, I did not name the boat. Uh, the boat was named before I um, bought into it. Ah. But the Black Mariah is an old phrase from early Americana, uh, and that's the wagon that the sheriffs used to use to haul the prisoners around. So there's like there's a prison motif. Even it extends to your there house. was. Yeah, okay. yeah, I didn't buy the house, but because of the name, but uh, okay. it, it ended up being a nice fit right. and a bit ironic. All
0: right, excellent. Well, I appreciate coming on the podcast today, Dr. Wilcox. You know, I think for anyone listening out there, it sounds like you know your path to where you got was very circuitous. But it sounds like you're quite happy. And when I tell people, like you never know, you know, you're going to do this residency or that residency. You never really know going to know where you're going to end up in five to ten years. You have a rough idea, but you really don't know
1: yeah there's lots of ways to be happy in medicine and uh you know in my graduating class i'll i'll bet you of my classmates are not doing now what they went into residency to do Hmm. uh, because they found other things they were interested in, other pathways. And so, you know, there's just tons of jobs in medicine and lots of ways to have leadership and to do what you want to do, Mm -hmm. kind of design something to fit your lifestyle. um, And it's a really wide open field, lots of possibilities.
0: And, you know, going back to like making a difference and helping people. I mean you found a way to impact a whole lot of people and make their lives better. and I, sh- I just think that's wonderful. I think that's
1: beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a really interesting job, and it is nice to be able to take care of individuals that you know just don't get uh, services in the community, and they uh, tend to be very grateful for what we do.
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production
1: of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.